is up? It is Dad's Day, Dad's Sweet Day. How many dads are in the house right now? How many dads? Got a few dads. How many granddads are in the house? Nice. How many great granddads? Ooh, oh! Any great, great? I know we're pushing it hard. I know. But I just thought I'd check because we would like all shout and cheer and I don't know, shuttle the donuts as an extra reward or whatever it is, man, because that's a long haul for dads. And you know what? I just thank you for all the dads, granddads, great-granddads, everybody else. Thank you for that investment. It was great. Yesterday, my wife and I, uh, there's a, like a documentary right now on Apple TV called Dads, and it's done by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, Ron Howard's daughter, and she just interviews just different dads doing different things, and I mean, I cried all the way through, man. I was just so appreciative of all the dads go through, so thank you for that. Appreciate your dads, granddads, great-granddads today. That would be phenomenal. That's the first thing I want to say. Second thing, I want to remind you that starting in July... We're going to have this whole series, the 5 of July, and you are a part of making that series happen. And so there is a number you can text ideas into. Whatever your ideas are that you want me to maybe hit for the month of July, you let me know. Maybe your thing is like, hey, who would Jesus vote for? scary, but we could do that. Or you could say, I want to do a thing about Calvinism versus Arminianism versus vegetarianism. Cool. We can do that if you want. I'm all down with that, man. Doesn't matter what it is. We can hit all kinds of topics, but you need to send those in. And then next Sunday, we're going to give you the top 10. And because again, it's July and it's very democratic and we're celebrating voting, you can vote for the top five of those 10. And those are the ones I will do for the month of July. So that should be pretty fun. So looking forward to that. It's going to be a good thing. Or maybe it's going to be a really freaky thing. I don't know. We'll find out. It's only once we get there, we'll know how it all goes down. So that's the second thing you need to know about. The third thing you need to know about is right now we're in the middle of a financial campaign for the hub. It's this kind of stretch goal that we have right now, which ends on the 25th of this month. Now, last week when I was with you, uh, I shared with you a number that at that point we were at two, uh, $276,154. That's what had come in so far. We were kind of just kind of holding there in that rough 63%, but then since that time, it's jumped up a little bit to 87%. Yeah, and actually that's a little north of that now, so... We're like roughly like a 57, 58, roughly somewhere in there, I think, based on numbers, uh, dollars away from hitting the goal with some time left. And so here's the thing. We were talking about it as leaders just the other night at our elder meeting. There has never been a time in the history of Redemption Church where there was a target put out there financially that wasn't hit. It's always hit every time. It's such a blessing. And I believe this one's going to get hit here too by your generosity, by God's grace and everything else. So again, if you haven't given to this, or maybe you have, but you're thinking about giving a little bit more, that would be great, because things are underway at the hub, dirt's moving, vaults are being built, pretty soon we're going to start to see the pin pilings, and things start to kind of build up structurally, and if you'd like to be a part of that, that would be so fantastic, and so just want you to know about that as well, and things are moving along with that. But today, today, uh, man, we are doing a deep dive into a wee little book uh, that we affectionately call Second John. It's this little teeny letter. It's the second shortest work of the entire Bible. It's uh, kind of cousin, Third John, is the shortest 
work of the entire Bible. And so this week we're doing 2 John. Next week we're doing 3 John. We're just wrapping up all of the letters of John in our series, Divided We Stand. And again, the heart of this series is saying we're not divided and standing against the world, but rather we are divided and standing for the sake of the world because Jesus came into the world to rescue the world. That's his heart. That's John 3, 16 and 17. And we are excited about the fact that that's what he came to do and to give life, give it abundantly because that is his mission statement in the Gospel of John. And so, again, we're kind of just unearthing all of those things. And as we do so, I want to remind you, we have an app with notes. You can follow along, fill in blanks. It's a great way to kind of track it out. But as we get underway, I am going to pray. And then we're going to get our hearts settled and dive right in. Let's do it together. Jesus, uh, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the dads and granddads and great-granddads that are amidst us or watching online. And I thank you that you work so faithfully, so beautifully in the relationships of fathers and their kids. Right? There's so much learning that goes on there. There's so much stretching that goes on there. And I just thank you for that. I also thank you for the fatherly heart of John that we have been tracking out for a few months now and seeing that he cares for these kids, he cares for these growing followers of you, Jesus, and how they are struggling, how they're hurting, how they're suffering under division at times, how relationships are getting broken, and John seeking to help them navigate as a family. And so I thank you for that fatherly heart, and I pray that, that we all, as your people, will have that kind of heart toward one another, and that we'll have your heart toward the world. And so we thank you for this opportunity to dive into your rich, uh, be it short, little message here, and from that, how we can apply it. So guide us and show us and teach us, Jesus, in your good and kind name. Amen. So I want to revisit kind of how we started 1 John, which is I, I, I wanted to always keep in perspective that all of us, no matter how old we are, uh, we were born into a very unique climate. And that unique climate is that we're all born in the middle of a story. It's unfolding. It's like this giant epic that's been told for centuries. It's been playing out for thousands of years. And, and, and we're just kind of in this place where maybe we're in the latter half of that story, but we don't even know how far, how long, how much longer it's going to continue before the story wraps up. But we're all born into this epic. And it's not just simply the human condition, but it's the human condition in relationship to God who is telling his story that has universal consequence through the human condition. That's kind of what we're all in. And so for us, as we understand it, the story starts in Genesis 1 and 2. It starts with a garden. That's one book into the story. And then at the other end is another book in, which is Revelation 21 and 22, and that's a city with a garden. Both have a tree of life. In fact, at the end of the book, end, there's trees of life, there's rivers involved, there's this essence of life, but then there's this in-between from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 20. And we're a part of the in-between. We're the in-betweeners, right? And all of life as we know, all the history that we understand has been that in-between state. Humanity weaving through the different epochs of transition, We've gone through the Stone Age, and then the Copper Age, and then the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. We were Paleo, and then Agrarian, and then eventually we became kind of industrialized. We started as kind of wandering tribes that coalesced into villages, which became towns, which became cities, which became empires, which eventually converted into these democracies that we understand today. But all through that weaving and winding, God has been working to tell his story, to kind of rekindle humanity to himself, 
to, to fix what was broken and lost in Genesis chapter 3. That's the whole thing. So in the Old Testament, we see that story very truncated and very narrow to the people of Israel. And God tells a story to the Hebrews in the Hebrew Testament. But then there's this time that comes at the end of that era where God's like, I will step in myself. I will show up amongst these humans as a human, and I will reveal the fullness of myself to them. And that is the person of Jesus. Jesus is the full declaration of the Father in human form, Paul says. He is the pinnacle revelation of the truth. There is no higher revelation of the truth than the person of Jesus that came into the world 2,000 years ago. And then what I love about this is that then he sets out to make sure others pass that story on. And that story is most powerfully revealed in the four Gospels. And what I love about the four Gospels is not just the content, not just the illumination, not just the declaration. I love who is chosen to pen the stories. Like Matthew. That guy was a tax collector, a traitor, a collaborator with Rome. And Jesus is like, I'm going to use that dude to write my story. Or Mark. Mark was a young kid when this all started for him. And you know what? He went on a trip with Paul, and Paul said, this guy is a loser. He's a quitter. He's not coming with us again. In fact, it was so brutal that Paul and his friend Barnabas, their tight friendship breaks over this dude, Mark. But he is the one chosen to write the gospel of Mark. And then there's Luke. You go, well, he's a doctor. Right, but doctors in the first century might as well have been like shamans, you know? Like there wasn't like medicine as we think of it today. And more than that, he was tightly connected to the Greeks, the pagans. And yet, this is who Jesus opts to use through his Holy Spirit. And then there was John. This underrated, uneducated, unqualified, unlikely candidate, a fisherman with a limited education, very limited worldly background, and Jesus is like, yep, that's the guy that I'm going to call and commission to walk with me, to learn from me, to be complete, completely captivated by me, and then to tell my story for all future generations. And so here is John, not just a writer of one piece of the New Testament, but four and maybe even five if he's in fact the one that wrote Revelation. There's some debate about that. But four to five works he is used by God to write to tell us the story. It's so profound to me. It's so powerful. And so I love the, the human element of that as well, right? That God uses the unlikely, the clumsy, the frail, the feeble, right, to accomplish his goals. Just that alone reveals much about the heart and character of God. And so uh, from this, John, he scribbles and he writes and he puts together all that we understand. Now, obviously, his opus is the Gospel of John, and he's riveted by certain components of the person of Jesus. And so he writes of themes about love and life and truth. The love, life, and truth of God. To all of us who are in the in-between. He writes it to us and for us. That's kind of that core thing. And he impacts these ideas about Jesus. And he writes within these varied themes to try to make certain points. And it circulates for a while. But some of the people it circulates to, they go, Man, we've got further questions. We need more illumination. We don't fully understand all of the implications of what you're writing. And so from this, a trilogy is formed. First John is what we've navigated. And it's by far the broadest, right? The most general of all of his works where you're just like, you know, it's like a blog, we said. It's very open-ended. 
And that whole message was really kind of, uh, kind of trying to crystallize the idea that what he wants us to understand from the Gospel of John is that we are called to love God and love one another in the same spirit as Jesus. Like, however Jesus did that, we want to duplicate that. And that's not an easy thing to do. Jesus is perfect. We are frail. And Jesus did it in ways that made a lot of people nervous. But it was so profound and beautiful. So it's always going to be kind of an awkward thing to accomplish. Like, oh, but that's what John writes to in 1 John. But then 2 John is a little bit more applicational, right? Because they have more questions based on his first letter. So they're like, oh, help us work this through. Or we're having different problems. And so, John, we need your help. And so he's seeking to apply, then how do we really love God? In a local church context, under certain pressures, what does that begin to look like? And so in some ways, what he's doing is he's taking the theology of his gospel, and he's taking kind of the philosophy of his first epistle or letter, and then he's making this very personalized work, right? Very tender, very meaningful, in a messy and divided and hurting community of faith. Because that's all true to them. There's a real-life problem that drives this letter. And so if you're taking notes with the, with the start of the letter, right, how he opens it up. And it's your first point in your notes. The old man and his lady electa. The old man. What's it say? This letter is from the elder. Elder here could be a technical term, but we kind of get the sense that it's more a personal term. It's kind of an, an endearment term. You know, like, again, elder just means uh, sage, kind of the statesman. He's the old guy in the room. He's seen a lot. He's done a lot. You know, by this time, maybe in John's life, most of the people he ran with with Jesus, they're dead. They're gone. Most of them have been executed. He's seen all kinds of misery, all sorts of calamity, and through those aged eyes, that old man knows things about relationships, about hardship, suffering, and the beauty of what Jesus can do with broken things. He knows all of that. So we want to listen to the old man. But he's writing to the chosen lady, or the elect lady, the electa lady, and to her children. He says, whom I love in the truth, as does everyone else who knows the truth, because the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Now, a couple of notes here I want to just highlight really quick. Uh, the first is you may not realize this, but you're reading not only somebody else's mail, but it's an encoded message at that. You'll notice no names are dropped here. It doesn't say from John the Elder. Some English versions will drop in John to give clarity, but that's not in the text necessarily. Uh, this is all code because you've got to remember, this is at a time where the early Christians are feeling the pressure both of local governments and the empire at large. Christianity is becoming a bit of a problem in some jurisdictions. And so these letters, as they're traveling, what you don't want to do is say, hey, I'm John, and that's Gene, and Fred, and Ted, and whatever, and it gets in wrong hands, and they get a paper trail, and they go back, and they can wipe out a whole church because they can kind of backfeed it. So they would write a bit in code at times. They would keep things a little bit loose. In fact, the book of Revelation is a lot of that in play because it seems to be an indictment against the Roman Empire, so they're talking in code a little bit. Rome is the beast and things like that, right? So this was not uncommon practice to do it. And so what you have here is just this, this old man that loves this community of faith. And so it's kind of like, you know, Roger, Roger, you know, Electa, are you there? I miss your kids. It's me, the old man. And the kids or the children are the people of the church. And the elect lady is the church itself. And he has a deep heart for this whole context, right? 
because he knows there's things that are going on among them. Thus he says, listen, when I think about you all, man, I, I love you in the truth. And, and when he says that, it, it's probably less like a technical statement, like a theological idea. And really, what he's just simply saying is, man, I truly love you. Like, I can't say it enough. I wish I had more paper. I could highlight all the ways I'm thrilled about you. But you got to know, I truly love you. But I truly love you because it is motivated by something truly deep, which is the truth, right? right? It's this truth that he knows, and it's this truth that he's indwelt by. And you want to keep John's theology in mind. When you go back to the Gospel of John, and, and if you were to ask John, John, when you use the word truth, what is first and foremost in your mind? And he would say, Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth. He's the life. Now, from Jesus flows what Jesus says. From that flows the rest of the Bible. Like, all of that's true. But for John, when he says, man, I know the truth. The truth is in me. It's what compels me to love you. He's saying, I know Jesus. Jesus is in me. And that reality compels me in love. That's what drives. That's what's the motivator. That's what abides and renews me, right? And that's what we want to remember, that all of our action and interaction and interplay is to be flowing from this idea that we have proximity to Jesus. Jesus is in our life. His heart is imposed on our heart, and we press that out to the world around us. And so that's what drives John, even in his twilight years, where he is worn out. He is spent, man. He has suffered greatly. And yet, man, he is flowing with love. Why? Because he's not generating that. It's not just a platitude. It is a deeply personal thing that Jesus is producing in him. It's that love that then displays this triad of grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is the undeserved love of God. Mercy is the unrestricted faithfulness of God in the face of our infidelity. In other words, forgiveness. Mercy is so much about God's forgiveness toward us. And then peace, the unending calm of God. All three John says, man, I'm thinking about you guys. I'm praying for that. I bless you with those ideas because that's dear to him. He sees these as deposited by the benevolence of the Father. He sees these as deposited by the brotherly affection of Christ for us who was sent by the Father and reveals the Father to us. And it's in light of that whole thing, of this guard and grace of mercy and peace and this benevolence of God, but then he ties in this idea that it will continue to be with us who live in truth and love. Now, this is where it's a little tricky in my thinking, right? Because he almost makes it a little contingent, right? That grace, mercy, and peace that comes from God, right, will continue to be with us provided that we live in truth and we live in love. There's something kind of practical about this in some ways. Like, you, you have to kind of be in pursuit of those to really experience that triad. And if you let those two things, truth and love, get out of whack, or one's subservient to the other, or you don't care about either one of those, then you're probably not going to experience this idea of grace and mercy and peace like you could, or you should, or he wants. So John kind of ties it together saying, hey, this thing fuels the experience of these things, and so you don't want to lose this, because then you won't have this. Now, here's why I think this is interesting to me as I think about it. Um, I have found over the journey of my Christian experience 
that we, we struggle to, to do love and truth in, in, in duality. We tend to kind of go one way or go the other. We never quite center up like we could or we should or we might. You know, I, I find that there are some environments where it's like love is the big idea and truth kind of gets sidebarred. Or other environments where truth is a big deal and they talk about love, but it doesn't feel loving. It feels kind of proud or judgmental or condemning. They say love, but it's not really. It's more truth than love. As much as, hey, we care about truth, but it's more about love, and then truth kind of loses in the end. Like, that's the tension mark. And I've seen it countless times. I've seen it in my own life, the tension of that. It's a challenge. And John knows it's a challenge, which is why I think he's always stringing them together. Because the real beauty is in the tension of trying to execute those faithfully and equally. I would argue that it's a messy business to do both. It's really messy. It's easier to pick one or the other. It's cleaner. But see, the peace, the strength, the fullness of all of this comes when we say, ah, I, want, I want to hold these in tension. I want to make sure that, that love oozes from me as I hold to the truth. And I hold to the truth as people are touched by love. Like, it has to be both in place. In fact, I think it's this tension that John gets into, which is why he kind of gives a very interesting structure to his letter. The structure to his letter is that we're going to see he talks about truth in verse 4. Then he's going to talk about love in verses 5 and 6. And then he's going to talk about deception in verses 7 through 11. Th there's a structure to it, right? It's like a topical sandwich. Like, love is the meat of his idea, and you'll see that when he says, this is why I'm writing. I'm writing about love. But he has these two slices of bread, truth and deception. Now, here's the thing about the truth and deception element. Uh, they're always fighting with each other, right? Understandably, they're, they're opposed to each other. The truth is always trying to clarify deception, and deception's always trying to oust the truth. Deception wants to say, no, 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 this is the true truth. And the truth is saying, no, 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 that's deception. And they're always locked in a struggle, in a battle. That's super understandable. But I think in John's thinking too, he's like, but between those two is love. And love actually should be informing both. It really should. I know that sounds a little weird, but here's what I mean by it. Obviously, love should inform truth, and truth informs love. Because again, if you're not executing both, then we're not living up to what John's called us to. So we have, again, this idea of saying, you know what? I need to make sure that as I'm executing truth, my tone, my temperament, my motivations are love. Not frustration, anger, I'm sick and tired of. Love. That's a valuable idea. But in the same vein, that should also be true with deception. Right? In other words, we shouldn't be like, you know what, I'm sick and tired of, I can't stand this, whatever. It should be, man, I so love these people, and they're so deceived by this thing, and I care so much about their heart and their soul, and I so desperately want them to be close to God. I'm hurting for them more than I'm sick and tired, frustrated, or judging them. Like, love should motivate even our take on deception. The social divides, the errors, the sins of our culture, right? We need to have a love of the truth and the truth of love cohabitating in our hearts and lives. And so I think John builds the structure on purpose. He puts love at the center of this whole thing because that needs to be intact. And I'm not saying that's always clean or easy or that it's going to look the same every time. That's not my thing. But it's still fighting to make sure our disposition is not 
anger at the brokenness or deceiving things that we see, but it's heartbreak. It's an ache. It's a sadness for those who are missing out on what they could have. Like, that should be the core of the heart. So, this appears to be the old man's focus in, in all three letters, right? He's trying to create this tension of truth and love and deal with air all mixed into one. And so he starts again in kind of our sandwich here with his first top slice of bread, if you will, which is keep living the truth. That's what he wants to say to this community. Keep living the truth. Because he's thrilled to find out that some are actually keeping with it. He says in verse 4, How happy I was to meet some of your children and find them living according to the truth, just as the Father commanded. Now, now part of what I have to wonder about here is, again, here's what John knows about this church, uh, and we're going to see it here in a minute. He knows it's divided. He knows it's on the decline. He knows it's become a spring of deceivers, again, as we're going to see in a minute. He knows all of that. And maybe in his own hesitation, maybe in his own pessimism, he's thinking about this particular church, and he's like, have they all gone astray? Have they all gone away? Are they all doing their own thing? Have they all broken away from Christ? Like, he's worried about this, right? But then he serendipitously, for reasons we don't know, <clears throat> comes across some of the kids. I don't know if it was a road trip, and they saw him, or whatever it was, but he says, man... I met some of your children from that church, and I was so pleased to see that they were living according to the truth. I mean, he's so joyful. Like, I don't know if he really anticipated anybody would be at this point, right? And I get that. It would be deeply heartbreaking to have maybe started a church or been a part of a church, and now the whole thing has just gone off the rails and imploded, right? But notice what he's excited about. He doesn't just say, you know what, I'm excited that you're holding to the ideology of affirming the truth, confessing the truth, believing the church, truth. No, he says, no, I'm thrilled that you're living the truth. You're living it. Because if there's anything I know in my own life, it's very easy, very easy, it's carefree to say, I believe in the Bible. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. Like, that's super easy to do. You know what's hard? I believe the Bible, not just in it. I believe it. So much so that I'm going to do what it says. I'm going to do the hard stuff that it says. That, that's hard. I believe Jesus when he says, hey, if you do these things, like in the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to get your butt kicked, but I'm going to reward you, so go do it. It's like, well, I don't want to get my butt kicked. Not in this world. I mean, a little bit, but not too much, right? And so do I really believe that he's going to reward if I do these things? Or I go, some of these things, the things that are comfortable. Like, it's a, that's the, the challenge. But these people are actually doing the hard stuff. They're actually living the truth. So again, John is stoked, right? Because honestly, when I read like Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, not easy to do. I'd love to say, oh, it's such a great passage, so beautiful. I stitch it on a pillow, put it on my couch. But go live it, man. Doesn't demand its own way, right? Isn't irritable. Like these things are like, oh, you know? My poor wife has to shoulder my opposites of that passage sometimes. You know, that's tough. I don't always do it. Fruit of the Spirit, that should be the natural outflow of every believer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And then you're dealing with the long line of the self-checkout at Safeway, right? And you're like, what? Right? That's where it all kind of rubber meets the road, or the grits hit the skillet, if that helps you more. Like, like, 
And, and he's like, but, but you guys are doing it still. I'm so thrilled that you're living the truth. Even as they're facing opposition on the outside and attrition on the inside. So he says, keep going after it, right? Others have quit. You don't stop, right? But what he wants to ground this in, though, is the fuel that's going to help them keep going on. So he says, I'm thrilled you're living in the truth. Keep living that truth. I'm stoked about it. But this next point is really critical. Keep abiding in love. Keep abiding in love as you're doing that. Because I do think sometimes it gets hard. So in verse 5, he says, I'm writing to remind you. So now this tells us this is the motive for the letter. The other stuff is introduction. It's a little bit of preamble. But now here's my motivation. He says, dear friends, I'm writing to remind you that we should love one another. This is not a new commandment, but one we had from the beginning. So again, 1 John, right? He said the same thing there. He said, make sure that you love love and you love what God loves to move forward. So great, John. Well, what is love then? He says in verse 6, Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another just as you heard from the beginning. So John is laser-focused here, right? So, for example, what he doesn't seem to be saying is he's not saying, hey, here's what love means. Obeying every single command that God has given you, and that is love. Now, I 100% agree with that. True love is obeying everything God has called us to. But I don't think that's John's focus here. He's not making a broad net. He tells us, here's the command, to love one another. So it's true, following all God's commands is to love God. And I actually think following all of God's commands is to love one another. But here, he's really trying to get to this love one another thing. This is the big idea that they must fight for, right? To, to live in a space where you show how much you really love God by loving the people around you in fidelity, in faithfulness, in obedience, in this Christian context. In a Christian context that I think is getting difficult, really difficult. Because the old man, again, knows that this church is divided and it's dazed. I want you to just think about it. You've been a part of churches before. You've seen where it can break down, right? Friendships in this environment are going to be fractured there were people that were once heroes 12 months ago, 18 months ago, three years ago, that now you're starting to feel like they're the villains. The unity you once had is nothing but perpetual friction. And in the middle are people that are confused. Which side do we go with? I don't know what to do. They're making this point, which is good. They're making that point, which is good. You know, all of that is in the mix, right? And, and I know the pain of this. I have been through two pretty radical, what I'd call Christian splits. One was hot and one was cold. The hot one was when I was an intern in 1991, and uh, we were in a large church in Spokane. And through a series of events, man, it started to form up. And there was a minority and there was a majority, and it was all fights for what was perceived as the truth. And, and in time, you know the, the first casualty of that? Love. Really. I mean, you could, you could backtrack it. You could see where suddenly, instead of saying, I'm going to love this person that's disagreeing with me right now, suddenly it's, oh, they're the enemy. They're the problem. And the other side would say, they're the problem too. They're proud. No, they're proud. No, they won't submit. They won't. And it was just, and it was brutal, man, because like I said, it was a large church, and it was so big and so open. Our local news station was reporting on the church split and interviewing the sides. Right? And I remember we had this big annual meeting, and people are getting up, this is the truth, and that's the truth. And honestly, when I reflect on all of it, I'm like, 
we were all stupid. We were all completely stupid. Because you know what? You know the truths we were fighting about? Regular old Orthodox Christian truths. Little gray areas. But what exacerbated is we lost love. Right? Devastating. Families were torn in two. Friendships were crushed. A whole community watching when Christians are nuts. Right? Because we couldn't manage to figure out, even in our difference to fight for love, we said, we don't need to fight for love because we can fight for truth. And again, I, I, if, if there was things where it's like, hey, somebody's denying the deity of Christ, like, okay, that's worth dividing over. No, this is just silliness, right? Doctrinal disputes with inside evangelicalism, with inside certain camps that really just probably don't matter that much. But the friction was so hot. It was devastating. That was the hot one. The cold one that I witnessed basically was from 2020 to 2022, right? We went through COVID and race issues and an election and lockdown ideas and differences of thought and differences of opinion. And there was all of this Christians versus Christians on all these different things. And the world's like, you all, again, are awesome at dividing up over everything, aren't you? Right? And it was so devastating because in the midst of it, I did. I watched friendships erode. People would post things on social media and other people go, I never knew my friend felt like that. And so friendships would get divided. Families would get divided all over this stuff. We, we just couldn't find love in the equation. It had to be about fighting for what I'm going to call perceived truths. John's dealing with real truth problems. We, we get crazy over even perceived problems. And so he knows this is their circumstance. He knows the divide that is there. And what he knows is they need to start trying to figure out uh, how to rekindle around their love for one another. Right? Because again, love is not known for dividing. Or maybe even, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying there isn't ever a time to divide. If anybody says, Matt says, all division's bad. Um, Matt's not saying that. There can be a time to divide. But what I would argue for is that even when that time comes, you should be fighting for love, even in dividing, versus you're angry, frustrated, short, judgmental, and then from that you just, it just takes you down the road of division. Like, weirdly enough, and, and this is not an endorsement, I'm not picking a side, this is not my thing, but I've been really watching stuff with like the United Methodist Church, because they're dividing. Right? So far, I think they've had 53 or 5,800 churches leave the United Methodist Church just in the recent period. But you want to know what their fundamental theological um, uniqueness is as a denomination? They believe in a thing called perfect love. And they believe that you can love perfectly in this life. Now, I disagree. It's not my jam. I'm no good at that anyway. I'd never be a good Methodist. Clearly, some new people already know that. So, like pretty apparent, right? So some people are like, I don't know that history. Don't sweat it. All right. So, but they believe in perfect love. And as they're dividing, they're still working toward how do we love perfectly even in our differences, in our division. I think that's to be commended. I don't get all the intricacies. I'm not saying everybody's doing it right. I'm not picking. It's not like, I'm just saying they're trying to figure out how to even divide in love. But you go, that's commendable to me. And I think in some ways, I think John would say, you know, yeah, don't lose love to divide. Be intelligent, be wise, be godly. Make sure you're fighting for the truth in love. Don't just simply give in to deception out of love. Make sure you, you, you keep a focus. But boy, don't sacrifice love in the process of it. Because even if they're your enemy, what do you have to do with an enemy? Love them, do good to them, bless them, 
Jesus is clear about how we handle enemies, much less potentially brothers or former brothers or whatever else, right? So John says, hey, man, make sure you guys are loving. But he adds tension because they think love and truth are always in tension. And so he adds now the other component, the bottom slice of bread to kind of his sandwich here. And that is the next thing in your notes. Keep aware of deception. He's like, man, keep living the truth. Keep abiding in love, but also keep aware of deception. He says, I tell you to love one another and to fight for that and to obey God's command to love one another because, so they're connected, many deceivers have gone out into the world and they deny that Jesus has come in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Again, language that he used back in his first letter. So this is pretty serious stuff. We're not talking about tongues, no tongues, Calvinism, Arminianism, any of that stuff. No, we're talking about people that say Jesus was never physically here or only briefly physically here. It's a big deal. It's like the biggest breach you can make. So it's a big deception problem here, right? But here's the thing that's happening. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. You might overlook that and think, oh, okay, so they all went to like uh, Deceiver University, and after getting out, they all came into the world as deceivers. But actually what John is saying is they've gone out from us. They've left our church. They were in here. They got it. They followed Jesus. They believed he was God and man. And through some series of events, they've decided, eh, not man, just God. We're punching out. And we're going to go out into the world, and we're now going to be missionaries for this new idea of who Jesus is. Just divine, just spiritual, not physical, not man. That's what they're going out to do. They're going out basically from us. That's a harder thing for John. And because, he says, many deceivers, this is an exodus. And I know as a pastor, when you see something like that, you get worried for everybody else. Is anybody else going to join in? Is everybody else going to go down that road? Is everybody going to vent into the world following the same ideology, right? And so John's worried about that. So what does he want to use to plug the wound? Love. That's odd. Now, we know he's contending for truth. There's no question. We know that Jesus is the truth, and what Jesus says is the truth, and we're supposed to live all of that out. But he's just said, make sure you love because of this thing. And I pondered that this week. I'm like, why would he use love as the way to plug the wound, right? And then I thought about it. Um, I, I think what he's getting at is he wants Christian love to be so compelling, you're not tempted by novelty. Right? By the new wingnutty idea of the day. And then I thought about this more because I'm, I'm certainly one I've, I've always shared with you guys. I'm very open to talking to people who have left the faith, deconstructed, or whatever else. Like, why did you leave? I want to understand why you left. And it's amazing how many times they're like, I was there and I got wounded. I was there and I got hurt. I was there and I didn't feel love or sense love or I saw unloving things. And then I looked around and I found a new idea. And because this wasn't compelling enough to stay, in particular, lots of wounds, I ran to the new idea hoping to get healing. And so I think John's onto something really brilliant when we think about it, which is, yeah, love can be a very compelling force to keep us in the pocket. And where there's the absence of love, there may be an openness to novelty. And so John's like, hey, man, you guys got to make sure you're doubling down on your love from one another. That's going to hold you in the pocket. 
And as you're loving one another, man, that spirit is kind of when the priests realize. Watch out. They do not lose what we work hard to achieve. Be diligent to receive your reward. And who wants away from teaching has no relationship with God. Anyone who remains in the teaching of Christ, their relationship with both the Father and the Son. Again, to happen, there's three. You don't want people wandering away. Love passionately. Hold the truth firmly. And let that be your compelling anchor. Don't throw it all away. You've come too far, right? You don't want to lose love and truth now because that's going to derail your relationships. It's going to ruin your walk with God. And so from this, he gives a very poignant warning. He says, if anyone comes into your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, i.e., they deny that Jesus came in a real body, which was verse 7, he says, don't invert that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. Anyone who encourages such people becomes a partner in their evil work. Now, when you read commentators on this, there's a little bit of murkiness. In other words, is John saying, never bring anybody into your home that you ideologically differ with. Well, then John would be running roughshod against a lot of commands on hospitality, even for the outsider, even for people that don't agree with you. Like, there's a lot of stuff about hospitality. Realistically, what he's talking about is, don't bring into your home community church, because they met in homes, right? Don't bring into your church somebody that's going to come in and teach, hey, we don't think Jesus really came as a dude. He's just a non-corporeal life force, or whatever it is. He's like, no, man, don't, don't bring them in. Don't give them space to teach that. Don't do that. But he's not saying don't ever evangelize them, don't hang out with them, don't reach out to them, don't try to share the truth. He's not, he wouldn't invalidate all of that, but he's like, man, don't give them platform, right? To say Jesus was only divine and not at all human because that's a bridge way too far. Way too far, because John knows it's only in that union are we saved. It's only in that union that, that man and God are rejoined through the God-man who is Christ. So for him, it is everything. It's everything. In fact, I think it's fascinating when you look at the three giant extensions of Christianity. So Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and the cornucopia that is Protestantism, and all of our different denominations and offshoots and everything else. You know what we can all agree on? Jesus was God, Jesus was man. It's pretty profound. Like, we, we know that that one really matters. We're going to differ about all kinds of other stuff. But that one really, really matters. And John knows it matters, and some are threatening to this. It's threatening this idea. So he's like, don't give them space to do this one. Right? It's just too much. Now, I would say for his recipients, this is easy on paper and hard in practice. It really is. Some are going to be too harsh with this, and some are going to be too laxed. And when we get into third John, we're going to see that the too harsh might have won the argument. To where now he's like, whoa, you're kicking out real missionaries while you're at it. Let's not do that, right? So he might have to reel them in a little bit from being a little too zealous on the stringency, but it's needed, right? They need to be aware. Because, man, John knows. It's easy to, to wander into infighting. It's easy to wander into all these things, and he wants to protect this church. What he also knows is in saying all of this, they all might go, fellowship's just too hard. It's too messy. It's too challenging and taxing. Thus, he's going to close, not so much with a command, but I think he says something that points to an idea that's valuable for all of us, which is keep cherishing the joy that will come from fellowship. Because for them, fellowship has been a nightmare. It's been a lot of pain, and John's warning them about others that might try to deceive them, and so you might even be more standoffish, more skittish, whatever else. And so he says, I have more to say to you, but I don't want to do it with paper and ink, for I hope to visit you soon and talk with you face to face. Then our joy will be complete. 
And then he says, greeting from children and your sister, which is another church that John is in and the members of that church. He says, all who are chosen by God. See, John kind of writes this last part and he's like, man, I know the limitations of, of paper and pen. Right? I know it doesn't convey tone. I know you're going to have a lot more questions from this than just simply answers. He gets all of it. It's what we all know, right? When you have really tender, difficult things, what you don't want to do is send a text, right? Or an email. Like, if you and your siblings are fighting as adults, do not send an email. Don't send that letter. Don't put it on social media. That's a bad idea, right? And so John's like, man, I, I want to come to you, and I want to work these things out with you face-to-face, -face, but then also notice that he says, because in doing that will complete our joy. That face-to-face -face fellowship completes joy. Paul says the same thing repeatedly, right? There's this thing about when we meet together, which is why I love what Scott encouraged a couple weeks ago by saying, this is why we want to be in a community of faith. It's why we want to be physically present, eye-to-eye -eye contact, right? Just physical presence. Man, that brings a fullness of joy to this whole idea of what the church is all about. And so he's just reminding them, like, you know, fellowship's worth it. Eye to eye is worth it. Life on life is worship, uh, is worth it. And it makes our, our joy complete. And so he's just trying to immerse them in the reminder, man, when I'm with you guys, you're going to feel it. You're going to remember why this is so important. And so they, like us, they have to hold all this intention. They have to face all of these real-life realities of continuing to live in the truth and abide in love and be aware of deception and Continue to cherish the joy of fellowship even when it's hard. But in doing that, in fighting for that, man, God's like, I'm there with you. I'm going to reward that. And I'm going to use you in powerful ways. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you are so enduring with us. Like, long-suffering is the word I think about. That we as humans, we're always trying to figure out, is this enough love? Is this enough truth? Am I letting one override the other? And we're trying to hold it in tension. It's really, really messy, and it can be a real challenge. And It's so easy to almost want to break fellowship with those things, or, or look at each other in a sideways way, and, and, and I pray that you will give us wisdom and grace and bandwidth and sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. None of it is easy, but it is all worth it in you. Now, if there's some in this room this morning or watching online where you're like, I'm not a Christian, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, this is your day, man. This is your day to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I know I've sinned against you. I've gone and done my own thing. I've not lived my life for you, and I want you to take my life so I can live my life for you because that's what your cross and resurrection is all about. If you want that in your life, it's just for you to stop and say, Jesus, I admit all of that. I admit I have, I have not surrendered my life to you, and, and today, take it, use it, change it, thank you for what you've done for me. You make that your prayer. We want to know. Whether through our app or through a number that will be on the screen, you can let us know, I made that decision today. And then for the rest of us, Jesus, I just pray you help us with the tension. Right? It's always going to be tension. But help us to live in that tension by your strength and grace. In your name.